My name is Brian Lloyd. I am the movies editor of entertainment.ie. You are listening to the Revisit podcast. On this episode, Emma Kerwin, actor, playwright and screenwriter, and his movie of choice, Robocop. One of the big things that came out of this conversation I had with Emmett about Robocop was how so many of us, I think, first digested this movie. For my generation, you saw it on TV, you saw it on one of those like VHSs that was like recorded over a hundred times, or you just saw it at somebody's house. And very often, a lot of the kind of topics and themes that are explored in Robocop just fly right over your head because... It's a crazy enough idea as it is. Like, it's Frankenstein, but with a Hong Kong action flair to it. You know, you've got Kurtwood Smith running around the place telling people, or calling people bitches and telling them to leave. Ronnie Cox, who is one of the nicest people in Hollywood, playing an absolute shit. You've got all these things, and on top of that, you've got, like, some really, I mean, even to this day really over-the-top violence. Like, that scene when the guy gets hit with the with the vat of acid and then he get, hits the car. Like, I mean, I'm 35 now and that I still get queasy looking at that. And I've seen Robocop, I don't know how many times. The idea of how the movie came together was essentially the screenwriter, Edward Neumeyer, and the music video director, Michael Miner, essentially were inspired by Blade Runner. Uh, the story goes, Neumeyer saw the poster of Blade Runner and he asked his friend what it was about. And his friend told him, oh, it's about a cop hunting robots. And out of that, he came up with this sort of vague idea of what it was going to be about. And then Michael Miner had the idea of, he had a rough draft of the script, which was called uh, Super Cop. And it was basically about how a police officer becomes seriously injured and then becomes a donor for this experiment to create this sort of cybernetic police officer. And then you kind of tie in the whole Frankenstein thing with that. And it becomes this movie that we know it to be today. But me personally, where I think this movie really found itself was not so much in the script. I think it was more in the fact that Paul Verhoeven, the Dutch director, came on board. Now, Paul Verhoeven at this time, he'd been working in the Netherlands for more than a decade and he'd done a lot of very kind of art house films like he'd done like Turkish Delight. He also did another film called Flesh and Blood with uh, Rucker Hauer who of course was in Blade Runner so there was a bit of a connection there. But the story goes that uh, he glanced through the script, thought it was crap, threw it away and then his wife picked up the script, started reading through it and convinced him that you know the plot actually had more substance than he initially assumed. I think that's a really good descriptor of Robocop because Robocop is one of those films that on the surface you think it's just this ridiculous, over-the-top, overtly fascistic film. And it's not. It has a real sense of class consciousness in it. We kind of talked about this, Emmett and I, we kind of talked about it. And the one thing I would say about this movie is, is that if somebody says, oh yeah, I love Robocop, it's such a good satire, that person knows what they're talking about because this film is a satire. It's a satire of police movies up until this point like Dirty Harry and Cobra and even Beverly Hills Cop to a certain degree. The famous author Hilary Mantle who wrote uh, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies and she was a film critic in the 80s for this local uh, newspaper in England 
and she absolutely loved Robocop and again saw in it that satire and that class consciousness because I think it's really obvious like you watch Robocop and it's so over the top you can't help but kind of laugh at it when you watch it too young to kind of get the humour of it you just think it's this hilarious and for how violent it is movie and it's only years later that you come back to it that you're kind of like oh yeah that's actually a hilarious film it's so witty and so smart I mean the fact that it's talking about cops unionising and then this city Delta City is a city that's built by a corporation and even you have the idea of capitalism coming into the criminal class, you know. Dick Jones is trying to convince Boddicker, uh, Kurtwood Smith's character, that, you know, oh, there's a lot of money to be made here for the right man and all you've got to do is just seize the opportunity. They're going to want women and drugs and you could be with the man to provide that. And the fact that in the past we think of criminals as being highly organised and I suppose there is a vague kind of capitalistic kind of veneer to them, especially in The Godfather. But in this, it was so overt. It was literally just two businessmen deciding to do this. And you also had the kind of the graft and the corruption thing going on as well, which was a huge thing in the 80s. You know, like Ronald Reagan, you know, you had the Iran-Contra affair and you had this whole idea of these very forthright white men who were upstanding citizens like Dick Jones and like the old man. Uh, who gave this veneer of all-American values, but underneath it, they were just black-hearted pirates who just didn't give a shit about screwing anybody over. They were just out to make money. And in Ronald Reagan's America, you had, like, loan scandals, you had banking scandals, you obviously had the Iran-Contra affair. For those who don't know, the Iran-Contra affair, basically what was happening was the US was selling arms to Iran and then using that money to fund anti-communist contra debt squads in South America and Central America and it was all being done kind of under the table by the White House and the Department of Defense in the US and it was a massive scandal in the 80s and that was in the air when Robocop was being written and when Robocop eventually made it into the cinemas and even take that away for the minute take that kind of cultural atmosphere you can even now watch robocop and see what's going on with the likes of amazon and twitter and facebook and 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 all these massive corporations that have such a stranglehold over our daily lives that the idea of them building a city wouldn't actually be all that crazy you'd kind of be like oh yeah i could totally imagine elon musk building a city out of nowhere you know what I mean? Like, it's terrible, but Robocop is still prescient to this day, I think. And even the special effects. I mean, you know, it's a very practical movie. Like, the suit that Peter Weller wears, it holds up, I think. Obviously, Ed 209 looks ridiculous, clearly. I think I think that, I don't think anyone would argue with that. But I do think the scenes that are with Robocop are done with a certain amount of, I guess you would say honesty and integrity and again that's something that me and Emma talked about the idea of Peter Weller was so committed to this role that he really did give it his all and I tell you I just I would always recommend if you've never seen Robocop and you've always been dismissive because you think it's this dumb action movie give it a go it is such a smart movie and such a funny movie that you'll always appreciate it because it has so many layers to it so without further ado this is Emma Kerwin and we're talking about Robocop
I would start off and say that Robocop is one of those films I think that is really it's like on the surface of it it's clearly just a straightforward sci-fi action film but when you kind of like just give it a little bit of just a tiny little bit amount of uh, examination it's a very very political film because yeah. like literally like the opening scene they're just talking about unionization like uh, yeah the, the script writers Newmeyer and Miner and Miner yeah they I think Miner he said he was he was a leftist you yeah. know and he had a, so he, he tried to imbue I was always under the kind of false impression that Verhoeven had come to America had seen American television while he was waiting in his motel room his hotel room and got the idea from that but actually yeah. That's apocryphal because it's it's it's. I read that in a magazine years ago. It all of that was in the in the script from the word go. Really? Yeah. And I didn't know that. Yeah. So oh. the film reviewers and stuff when they went to see it kind of came out going, "Why is there adverts in the middle of the th- in the film?" Yeah. And the, the studio was a bit kind of, "No, we're not really sure about this idea of ads." But when he came, Verhoeven said that Verhoeven was kind of ran out of Holland. Yeah. Prior to this, uh, he'd made a lot of films like uh, Soldier of Orange yeah, and all that kind of stuff. And Turkish Delight. Yeah. yeah. And Turkish, after Turkish Delight, he got a lot of offers and he didn't go. And he pissed off everybody over there. And he, Holland's quite leftist and he yeah. said this. He goes, the, 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 these film councils are quite leftist. And, but he made these very uh, provocative. Yeah, provocative, risque movies that essentially they felt put him in, put Holland in a bad light. Yeah. Uh, so he kind of, he wasn't getting any more work. He was 46 and he came over and he was shocked by television. He's watching the Challenger uh, shuttle explosion and then just found it really incredibly strange that in between this you'd have all these garish ads for medical uh, prescriptions ask your doctor you know all the the Mm. comedy that's in it you know I'll buy that for a dollar guy so but all of that is actually in the script and the uh, miner said that he gets hassle from his friends on the left and he gets hassle from his friends on the right in the modern era some of them hold it up as this great kind of you know uh, treatise to the, uh, the privatisation that was yeah. happening in America at the time corporatism and uh, scathing you know look at that all gussied up in the guise of, of an all out action uh, sci-fi movie yeah. uh, and then other people obviously well, everything's going on with the police now you can look back well and this has always been the case with yeah. police in America you can look back at it and say what would be a mechanised robotic yeah. uh, cop you know what I mean so cops are essentially in every kind of iteration of a movie cops are always the good guys correct so American audiences and the public have been taught to you know not only not fear cops but respect them and you know they're 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 heroes they're, yeah. they're heroes of their of their mythology in their uh, yeah. in their, and even his name is Murphy you know he's an, he's, he's following an archetype yeah. of the American yeah. power he is Irish but uh, they're very careful in the film I don't know if we're jumping ahead no, of ourselves no, no, no. No. Yeah, they're incredibly yeah. careful in the film to make the villains in the film almost Batman villain-esque yeah. they are laughing maniacal psychopaths you know and one of them even has the guy they cast as the hyena laugh yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they He's all brilliant. kind of have this you know so it's brilliant so like when he takes it on it's kind of it's crime but crime in the pure evil sense yeah. it's corporate America hiring uh, you know guys to do the dirty work that we know corporate America already does yeah. so not only are they screwing you from a corporate level they're screwing you from a street level as well yeah. and Robocop basically has used the champion of the people because he is they, they mention in the second uh, they go you know he's a hard working Irish Catholic man who no one else could have actually survived the transformation yeah. to a cyborg because he had that stability as a human being and, yeah. Uh, yeah it's kind of like I, I was watching like I, I literally watched it last night and I thought like I don't know about you but literally the first time I saw this film was like fucking 
Network 2 yeah, yeah. in the middle of the 90s at like 10 o'clock at night. Me and my brother had this tiny little telly in our bedroom that like, we used to watch all these like films that we shouldn't be watching. Totally. At the, yeah, 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 yeah. And like at the time, like at the time I just watched it and thought, shit, that's a really violent film kind of thing. Like, And it is. Like Even yeah. now like I watch yeah. it and I'm still shocked by how violent it is. But, you know, in, in, in that sense, like I know there's always that thing of, you know, like satire, good satire should be almost indistinct from comedy in the in the sense of like, if you're if you're not satirizing something, you're just basically doing something completely straight. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Or you're using satire essentially to disguise other things. Correct. Such as you know, oh well, I'm not actually being racist, or I'm not actually being classist. I'm actually being all these other things. Yeah. And using satire as the as the as the. As the do guide. you think Robocop has that? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, even from the first go, just just to touch on your thing about being shown, I was shown up by my brother. Oh, yeah. And I shouldn't have been. And I knew myself I shouldn't have been. And uh, uh, I was like, oh, no, no, I don't think we should be watching this. And like, shut, shut, shut up, nerd. <laughs> we got it from the video shop and it was a huge shot film on video. You know, obviously yeah, of course, you wouldn't yeah. have seen this in the cinema. Um, and it's only something that could have been told, I think, by an outsider, really. You yeah. know, he's seen America in a very garish, horrible kind of way and he was able to critique it as such, you know, because yeah. he just found it incredible. He was like, it was, this, is, this was a society on cocaine essentially mm. you know what I mean he kind of seen it like that and the film is like that but the opening there is a juxtaposition between incredible horror shocking boardroom death in the opening of it and he doesn't just show this man getting shot he shows this man getting riddled oh yeah and the brilliant uh, Irish actor Abby Dan O'Hurley Dan O'Hurley at the end gets up and he says Dave I'm really really disappointed not in the fact that a man or a corporate executive is being murdered in a day but that the product is basically faulty and they're yeah. going to have to recall them from the American military so the idea the dehumanisation from the very word go uh, of corporate life in America of how corporatism had essentially and and Numier said this corporate America had essentially been allowed to run riot and rampant and the fear of communist Russia essentially and collectivism and all this kind of thing for in, in favour of individualism had essentially been and it is amazing that I was watching it again they've essentially given over that power to a different type of collective yeah. under the guise of a corporation and it's from the moment go these people are not human the corporate executives are not human they care nothing for uh, human life and uh, the people who are uh, human are those kind of working stiff working class yeah. cops you know yeah that's yeah. it like you even see like even Miguel Ferrer's character yeah. um, Morton Bob Morton yes like yeah. literally like when he's like walking away from the thing he's all like you know he's old I'm young fuck him yeah that idea of like you know the way like all those like courtroom survival of the fittest kind of correct yeah yeah yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, re, the, re, the repurposing essentially of a, of a 19th century ideology of you know Darwinism of, yeah, Darwinism yeah, 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 yeah. into the boardroom which is like complete nonsense complete <laughs> bullshit yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but they, they use it to essentially give themselves a new type of morality correct. they've created their own kind of way of making money and then they've created their own type of way of morality around it to basically either disguise or forgive themselves and everything around them eh, for their ill do ill you know, ill-gotten gains and their, yeah. their wrongdoing. You know. Yeah. But having said that, though, like it's uh, for all that, I I, th- I do find myself laughing at it. It is cartoon violence, and yeah. and it's and in a way, it's something that actually wouldn't 
it, the films got less violent yeah. over the years. Now, it's kind of changed. I was thinking about it recently. Numiar mentioned, I was watching some interviews on the, the DVD, mm. Blu-ray special edition, which was great, actually. I was watching it because I've watched other prints of it on VHS. They're, they're ropey, aren't they're they? They're pretty ropey. The, the, the original film, whatever, and this is a real nerdy kind of talk. But oh, like, the, the, the original film's kind of, has been treated badly or whatever, hasn't been really mm. kept in, in good position. And even the Blu-ray wasn't great, so I'm hoping for something that's even a bit more. But um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, Numiar was saying that yeah, post 9-11 action films had kind of taken on a, a pro-Bush yeah. pro-strike first model and this wasn't one of those films it was more of a defensive kind of thing where yeah. you know the military and the corporations that are funding them with the weapons and the government are all in league with each other and uh, militarism even there's, there's, there's an opening scene it's about like a, pro, a Star Wars laser yeah the peace the Star Wars peace P- platform peace platform goes yeah. off by accident and kills like two ex-presidents and yeah. like thousands of people you know so it's constantly pulling the rug from under it it's, it's a hyper Realize, not sexualized, all sex yeah. is being taken out of it. And uh, Verhoeven coming from Europe wanted to put sex into it, he wanted to make Murphy have an affair with uh, his You partner. could see that, couldn't you, with uh, Nancy? Yeah, face, yeah. He, he actually asked Nancy, um, Nancy Allen to Nancy put on Allen. weight and to cut her hair. So this is now, you wouldn't get away with this now, but he asked her to cut her hair and to put on weight so there would be no kind of like. Uh, allusions to the idea that they would be attracted to each other you know Jeez. yeah I know yeah, kind yeah. of androgynous almost <laughs> he did yeah he gave her, and she said that she had to go through like nearly 10 different haircuts you know what I mean and, and she said so, like she was you know you wouldn't get away with doing no, it no. but even that it's like he, could, he couldn't just actually have a man and a woman working side by side you know, you, have to, yeah. you know it's like um, there isn't a, it's, it's funny if you've watched Dread uh, and, and I, I don't know I, I feel Garland and stuff like that who wrote the script of Dread they would say that there's a lot of things about Robocop that I think Dread influenced Robocop completely I don't know if they were reading it but almost it is yeah there's a huge commonality between them and even the relationship between uh, Nancy Allen's character and Robocop is similar to Judge Dread and Judge uh, Anderson yeah and they, they played that quite well in the in the Alex Garland scripted and uh, I can't remember who directed it Dread from about 2012 you know I remember yeah, Peter, yeah. Pete Travers yeah Pete Travers. it's funny because like not to cut across you no, but no. like I used to read 2000 AD when I was a kid same here yeah yeah and you remember as well that they really lean on the whole kind of dirty Harry totally vibe yeah. and I always felt Robocop as well was like dirty Harry on fucking crack like yeah. because it is that thing of it's so black and white. It is so kind of binary in its morality. There's yeah. the good guys and there's the bad guys and that's it. Yeah. But in saying that, I think, you know, whereas Dirty Harry was kind of like, you know, the law and morality is holding him back. Yeah. Kind of thing. Whereas in Robocop, morality is what's given him life kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. that kind of like, it's actually, it's on the surface, they look the same, but the minute you start kind of examining it, it's actually yeah. Robocop is a bit more moral if, in, in a so, weird kind of way it is totally like the thing with Dirty Harry and other kind of representations of American cops they're consistently breaking civil liberties correct we we can't go by the book for this we need to go around you know yeah. City Hall so every all the time kind of bureaucracy civil liberties and politicians who are kind of lazy and feckless are getting in the way of them getting the bad guy the main reason why that doesn't happen in this and the way it did with you know Dread is a, an English version of Robocop correct pre-Robocop obviously uh, so I was wondering if Numier and Minor had actually read George Dredd I'd say they did I, they must have done it, it, you know? it, it they feels, were young feels, as well at that time yeah and it feels like there's too many kind of similar similar kind of riffs I would yeah. say yeah, you can't you can't deny it. Like you can't deny yeah. that there was a crossover. I, like you know, he's a fascist. Dread is, and Robocop isn't. You know, we're saying he's kind of like that. You know, working class, yeah. blue collar worker. 
I know Miner said that he was oh, he was it was in New Year Miner were working on Blade Runner mm. and they asked somebody they were working in the art department that they asked somebody what's it about and he said it's about a cop chasing robot renegades yeah. and he said well what would, what would it be like if it was a robot chasing humans, humans? Mm. so but there is a thing about the military like you know the, the president said Eisenhower you know the, the military, military industrial, industrial complex, complex. Yeah. and that is from the very word go the corporation is that basically feeding this other Ed 209 character into the, into the mix there's a huge thread going through it of the dehumanisation of Americans how Americans are going to live beside technology in the future mm. what happens when we give ourselves over to the technology completely and what happens then when we can't separate the man from the machine mm. so we're going forward right down the line no, no, yeah. you know the dose X machine you know he is the ghost in the shell he is the ghost in the machine he is literally a person that has been his humanity has been taken away from him mm. and there was a dehumanising aspect to 80s America where crime was rampant yeah. people thought the technology would be their saviour and we see now going into the future the technology is not if anything it's it's actually a cage that you know mm. keeps people in place and this was the idea that if they could dehumanise somebody but actually his soul well, his well, body transcend. is transcend and actually try to break free from the machinery and the machinery confines now this might sound like we're talking about <laughs> over different yeah, films yeah, yeah. what people seeing because on the surface if you watch it it is a B-movie with a B-movie script mm. uh, not necessarily B-movie actors these were all brilliant actors yeah, Peter but they were, there was no names mm. so it was only a 13 million dollar script but Donna Hurley and stuff uh, Miguel Ferrer you know Ronnie uh, Cox Ronnie Cox Cox is brilliant he's so fucking good in it Kurtwood Smith is playing against type Kurtwood Smith if you don't know listening uh, he was the father in that 70s show and he's in he's TV red. shows like The Patriot yeah he's red yeah. but he played against type he was an, an LA theatre actor who is you know small slight Thin, and he plays this maniacal psychopath who's scarier than any kind of yeah. you know Bond villain because he's just a lunatic. You know? I love like I have to say like I feel Ronnie Cox doesn't get enough yes of a mention because like I, I know and I don't know about you but like his episode of uh, the Next Generation Chain of Command when he plays Jellico yeah Craig, yeah fantastic in yeah. that because he's so good at playing a hard ass yeah but yet if you see him in Deliverance. If you see him in like Beverly Hills Cop, if you see him in any of the stuff he's done, he is a, and even in real life, he's this like real Northern California hippie yeah. with a guitar. I saw him in fucking Whelan's once. What? Yeah, he, 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 used to t- he used to tour around Ireland with a guitar and do all these like folk cover songs. And with people, would he get an audience? He like? would definitely get, not a big audience, but yeah, he got it. Still. It, it was kind of like, oh, more than a Dublin crooner. <laughs> oh jeez, completely, yeah. More than Foster and Allen. Like, yeah, well, Foster and Allen could draw a crowd. Pretty big. Pretty big, but um, yeah, no, he's like this really kind of like gentle soul. Right. But when you see him on screen and in Robocop, he's, Vicious, vicious. Yeah. vicious. Like. He says, you know, we used to we used to take on the old man. We used to call one time, once I even call him asshole. And he, goes, respect. Respect. And he grabs the back of the back thing. Of his head. Oh. And he, but he got he did like Verhoeven's second film, then Total Recall. He got him back. Cohagen. And he got like two double punch, you know, of kind of like the bad guys of the eighties. And he was in was the eighteen as well, was he? Yeah, he was in one of the baddies in the, the baddie yeah. of the week kind of right, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That scene when uh, 
when like what do you call it when things shoot I'm like bitches yeah. leave yeah, yeah. and he puts the video in like the, the DVD, DVD before he, which was huge yeah, yeah, yeah big wow. fucking laser disc laser disc yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's like I'm cashing and you they're, out they're Bob doing, they're doing like coke off each other and it's just like it's just the excesses <laughs> of the 80s the whole thing is kind of like an eight, if, if the 80s was to go forward in the future yeah. without the 90s and the 2000s happening it's 20 years into the future but the 80s never stopped yeah it's correct it's the idea but yeah, yeah. It's, it's brilliant yeah. It's, it's funny though because like in looking at his performance compared to compared to Peter Weller, I feel like I've always felt that Peter Weller was and I, this is going to sound terrible. This is going to sound mm. sacrilegious. I always felt he was the weak link in that film. Yeah, in, in a weird kind of way, like because it's like obviously he took it really seriously, like and he did all these like movement coaches and all the this method, kind of shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, the me- went method with it. Yeah. Whereas everybody else, like Ray Wise, fucking Miguel Ferrer, Ronnie Cox. Yeah. Kurtwood Smith they're all having like, you can see they're just completely overplaying it whereas he's like being so serious about yeah. it yeah like, Miguel Ferrer says you know he's quite funny he passed away brilliant actor brilliant actor um, he he said he knew him about 10 years and would go up to him and go hey you know hey hey, hey Peter how you going on he was like I'm not Peter I'm Robo you know and he'd be like, <laughs> he's like and, he, and he was doing like a voice and all and Miguel Ferrer like is just taking a piss out of him going you're gonna you're gonna do that Robo voice because I wouldn't do that <laughs> <laughs> so well I got sacked from it yeah, Verhoeven at the time was very kind of Verhoeven said a lot of things that he's kind of rolled back on. You know, Verhoeven said he didn't like the script, the type of crap. But actually, yeah, and then threw it in, away and all his this. English and his wasn't wife good. told him, yeah, 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 his wife picked it up, but his English wasn't good, so he found a lot of the words quite tough. But they had a suit, and yeah, Weller had been training with this mime artist, watching silent movies, and and working with this guy from Juilliard to kind of get the body and the movements right. And then when they got the suit, the suit didn't work. So Weller and him had this big blowout in a uh, Ryan picture, or Cor- Coralco, I think, who made it, made Terminator as well. They came down and sacked him, kind of going, just get okay. on with it. Yeah, and at that time, they were saying they were calling up Hollywood agents to find out literally who had the same shoe size. Now, Verhoeven says he only cast Weller because of his chin. But I actually do think Weller is quite good. Like, when you hear Weller talk, Weller did treat the role incredibly seriously. Very seriously, yeah. And he is quite a deep thinker and all these kind of things about it. He was saying the soul, the soulscaping, you know, a lot of that stuff is, he, he, he's commenting on that. And one thing, there is another side to acting that I always find. Actors, people will say, Keanu Reeves is not a good actor. That's bullshit. Absolutely. And the reason is because sometimes acting can become about athleticism. Correct. And he was an athlete. He was a, he was a marathon runner. And the ability... And what happens is sometimes when it becomes about athleticism, you can basically de-intellectualize it. Correct. You can just reduce it down to something he lost weight, he put on weight, he lost weight, he put on weight. So people will dismiss it like that, but it's an incredible thing to do. So Keanu Reeves' ability, there's, there's an acting coach from the early uh, 20th century called Meyerhold. Uh, Meyerhold's technique was um, body mechanics. It's not the same thing as other body mechanics, but he basically thought the actor is athlete. Keanu Reeves is like that. Yeah. Keanu Reeves is a train, you know, emphatically. So there's acting is also physical acting mm. and the body. And uh, Miller or Weller is incredibly dedicated to the movement of it, getting into that role, doing it. And dedication is, is hard to come by and especially dedication with material like this mm. where people could just dismiss it and go, Throw it out of hand, yeah. It's a fucking movie about a bleeding man and a robot. And yeah. it's a shoot 'em up and it's a B movie. Get over yourself. But actually, if everybody had taken on that, that, attitude. that attitude, and they all did, Verhoeven did, the scriptwriters did, they thought they were making a movie, a silly movie about a robot that can shoot people up and it's incredibly violent and incredibly B movie aesthetic. But actually, it says a lot about uh, the, the, the workmanship that went into it and the collaborative effort of movies. Yeah. And similar to Terminator. Terminator wasn't, that was a collaborative effort. It's very similar 
familiar kind of like uh, style and movie and stuff and Schwarzenegger was talking for the role but whether since he was the person that could fit into the suit like you know so anyway I don't know no no, no I get no because like, it's funny you say it's funny that you mentioned acting because I was going to actually kind of interrogate that a little bit because when I think of Emma Kerwin the actor and the writer and the playwright and all the rest of it like this is an odd choice for you if you don't mind me saying and right. I'll tell you why because like it's we've been doing like this is our second season and like I've always kind of been of the opinion that the, the films that people pick it's not that it's a reflection on them necessarily but it does kind of speak a little bit about them I think yeah I mean like there are some people that will choose a film because I watch this film to switch off yes and yeah. I watch this film because it speaks to me about what I do or who I am or whatever I mean, I, I like we. I know, we, and this might be giving a bit away, but I remember you initially were going to go with the Thin Red Line. Yeah, was I, that a performative choice? Do you know what it is? That was the nineteen-year-old in me choice. I am um, that you go for the Thin Red Line. Yeah, because I, <laughs> well, it was like, I read a great book recently called Ninety Nine. Yeah. Nineteen Ninety Nine is about like film year in film, and I seen the cinema. There was a guy who was training with me at the time. He used to work in Tala in the cinema. UCI? Uh, yeah, the UCI, yeah. And um, I remember seeing Fight Club, The Matrix, and Thin Red Line there, all in the same year. And we actually got tickets to the Thin Red Line on our own. Now, in 19, I didn't know anything about... Um, what's his name? Uh, Malik. Malik. So when I seen it, I was kind of blown away with the visual and the, the wide-angle screen. But when I look back at it and his, his, re, his more recent work, I kind of the ponderous kind of nature of it. Yeah. So there probably was a performative thing, because I remember going... I loved it at 19 because like, I thought I found something no one else had but obviously right. everybody <laughs> found it yeah, everybody that's always knew, the way but everybody knew who way. he was as well it's just like that's what 19 year olds are they see yeah. some movie they go have you have you heard about this film Aliens you know, like, have yeah, you heard about Heat yeah, Michael yeah, Mann yeah. so there probably was that but also I was like are you fucking t- picking the Timmy Alone you're not going to watch that again and actually this isn't to talk about myself but no, no, just no, ask the choice. Robocop's actually in the play version of Dublin Old School um, there's a flashback scene where the two brothers are watching Dublin Old School on screen and about this kind of transgressive thing that the older brother shows to the younger brother and he says we're not allowed to watch that mum said that's an 18s and then in the film version it's in the film version as well there's a flashback to the two brothers on a couch and the film that the two brothers are watching on the couch is Robocop so it's treaded through a few different things I before. saw fucking Dublin Old School I don't remember that scene he goes what are you watching he goes Robocop it's a flashback to two kids fucking, on a sitting I, on yeah, a couch I remember, I'm, I'm yeah. remembering that scene I don't know why I didn't make which that was connection in, which is in the play and in yeah. the play all also as well he goes these cops think they're robbing these cops think they're uh, knocking over the drug factory from Robocop and um, so I was kind of thinking what are you talking about and I'm in my office at home and I showed you the picture yeah. so on one side is a, a maxi poster of uh, or fr- framed I should say no 16 mm-hmm. uh, Robocop and the new side Terminator and the new side like the Empire Strikes Back and so I was like these are the films you're an 80s video kid yeah. these are the films and the play I'm at the moment called Movies and Milk and that's set in a video shop so everything was about those videos that were given to you that you weren't supposed to be watching Correct. so you know it was kind of given to you a secret and I was like what are you doing and I I just loved it I was like a kid I was like telling my friends about it I remember at my doorstep they were like what's the last line and it's like you haven't seen a spoiler alert you know I was like Donna Hurley he, and I always remember him giving it more gusto but I actually watched it last night and he's like really throw away he's like fixing his tie after yeah, like telling him you're fired he tells him he's fired and Murphy Robocop gets to go ahead to blow him out the window and he does <laughs> with the big huge long arms yeah. when he's falling out the window because it's like stop motion you're like why did they do that it's just so much of it's like um, but Hurley he's saying you know nice shot kid what's your name you know kind of like yeah. like 1930s yeah, Murphy and I was just like yeah this is such a brilliant it's a way better film, uh, much better film and all of the, the films that I watch that are at home the ones that I have on that I would get in 
conventional media like Blu-ray, hard disc, or whatever, um, it's all science fiction and yeah. you know, and films like that that were kind of out there and maybe people would be very dismissive of. Well, they were dismissive of at the time. Yeah, correct. And probably still now they go, Robocop, get a grip. What's that? You yeah, because it's sorry, I'm talking a lot. No, 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 no. Because like it is, I like yeah, I would be of the same of a similar generation as yourself. Like the idea of like these films that like were very much formative in as as a person who creates or as a person who writes or critiques or does whatever yeah. these are the films that form a bedrock that you will and and the, the thing of like you come back to them and it's when you come back to them that you realize that there is this deeper layer underneath them big time whatever kind of media you consume as a child will have a profound kind of influence mm. and then films that are profound you will, feels, you will find them when you're a child and go Oh, everyone else didn't listen to this. Why is this sticking around? It's like I watched Stargate recently, and I remember thinking it was a good film and as a teenager, but just a good film. Mm. I was like, and then I watched it again. I was like, yeah, I was, I was right at the time. Yeah. But there's films you can think you go, oh, that blew me away as a child, and then you go back to it and watch it. Like I don't know, Short Circuit Two, <laughs> and you come back to me and you go, maybe Johnny Five wasn't as profound as I thought. As I it was. thought, yeah, yeah. Uh, possibly. Um, but there are films that you go, oh, maybe it was I have to see something, not just the violence and the blood and the guts and the gore, but actually that stuck with me. You know, I understand, maybe, I don't know, you, you get, you were watching, consuming a lot of television, so anything that was skewering that TV land-esque yeah. world, I mean, I'll buy it after a dollar, man. Thread it through, you know that kind of Borat thing when there's yeah. a new comedy or what's up, you know, what's up, you know, the, like the, the thing, of, thing. Trying to make a meme, but it was memes before there were memes. Those like. things that permeate into culture, and then even the executives are saying it, you're like, well, I'll <laughs> buy that for a dollar. The layers that are going through it, the treasure, they create their own world, they build a world from the ground up, from the very word go. That's incredibly hard to do in 90 minutes of film, and they do it incredibly well by these over-the-top TV commercials that skewer American culture, Newcomb medical ads for hearts yeah. that don't work or might work, you know. There was a, there was a great line in it as well when the character says, when the criminal says, you know, no better way to steal money than free enterprise. Free enterprise. You know, so yeah. the politics is like, yeah, you know, criminals are basically saying, we, we know how this world works and you, you're all suckers, we're not going along with it, you know. Yeah, it's so, like, it, and I think, uh, we'll come back to that, but I want to know out of all the scenes in the film because I do think it's a film that has it's very well constructed in that there are set pieces yeah the real like really strong set pieces in it like you know the fucking the drug factory yeah or you know the first time he encounters Ed 2 on Ayn or yeah. when he actually gets shot to pieces and shit like that what's your favourite scene? the most affecting scene I think is when just to set it up slightly there's a kind of thing that Rovan does do you ever hear of like anesthesial awareness yeah you know on the table so from the word go from the time he gets shot we go into this kind of world this inner world of a trapped uh, someone has locked in syndrome mm. almost so it's kind of like a film where the the point of view yeah. goes into a locked in syndrome uh, aspect so we start to see things from the surgical table from that moment on once he gets shot and um, we see him take in his dehumanisation his transformation from a human into a product he views all of these people talking about him as if he's a piece of meat and we can disassociate we can do whatever we want and what he does is Verhoeven shows him starting to like this thing of the soul starting to wake up and he starts to remember parts of his old life and he goes to his old home as Robocop which could be kind of if it wasn't handled in the way of another by another director with 
more subtlety yeah it would be kind of almost ridiculous yeah you know sentimental sentimental well also like the idea of a robot you know what I mean going to a house but it is incredibly affecting and it's actually heartbreaking so he goes in and he starts to have flashbacks but the flashbacks are through his POV mm. so you see the camera the family running up to him because it's we know when we dream we see the dream from our eyes correct we don't see it from a third person perspective but when people shoot dreams in films they're always shot from a third person perspective of the audience looking at the person's dream dreaming yeah. dreaming in a dream within a dream but Verhoeven does this thing where he has this point of view perspective of Robocop reimagining his life realising what he has lost mm. and then realising what they've made him they've turned him into Frankenstein yeah. and then he starts to remember and this is the reason why I say well I did a really good job he only can emote he has to emote but we can only see his mouth and he's a really like he's and like he does his, this strange thing yeah, when he's mouth, like trying yeah. to run yeah. and he starts to run but he can't run because like he's in a robotic body so he's yeah. the slow destruction of the house and his old memories and he smashes the place apart and then he goes after yeah. the people that essentially turn him into a monster and he goes to take his revenge upon them so it's a revenge fantasy yeah. almost film as well and yeah and it's funny you say that as well when you were talking about the scene where they're making him another point that I think doesn't get mentioned enough about Robocop is, is that there are really strong body horror yeah like I, and I even on one point I'd even mentioned that is in the unrated cut and yeah. I, again I saw it last night you know what I'm thinking of when the when he bashes into the toxic waste thing yes. and your man walks out and it's all like Aah! yeah it's like a trauma, like, video, a trauma yeah, film yeah like toxic, toxic avenger, avenger yeah. correct yeah 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 and like, but when he hits the car it's just like a pop like, yeah. it's, it is fucking disgusting like and it, it, that, that's the line that's in the play in old school where he goes what's it like and he goes there's one guy that gets hit by a vat full of acid and you know you're like, you're like oh cool you know splattered effects yeah, it yeah. actually is terrible I've shown people Robocop and Terminator over the years Yeah. and if you've only ever seen the sequels to either film you go oh if you're like a, a rollicking kind of action adventure mm. but both of them are horror films Yeah. they're horror films and one of the most affecting things that Verhoeven he took out a lot of exposition mm. why did they use a human to turn him into a cyborg and there's lots of reasons but they don't actually talk about them in the film they just go it's just a more effective way the reason they do is because because they haven't reached the singularity where they can get like a, an AI yeah, yeah. so they need a human still so they need to basically be ghouls and take a body but the reason they leave him with a face the idea actually in the script was it's not actually his head and his brain they basically just take his brain mm. they give him a complete prosthesis and just like a stomach and, and a heart and that's actually what they've done is they've peeled his face off yeah. and just put it on a robot. And the reason yeah. for this is that if a human had their consciousness uploaded to a machine and then they were to view their face in a mirror, the mind wouldn't be able to take it. So the psychological fracture that would happen if you woke up inside the body of a machine and you had no human face. So they leave that there in order for him to be able to deal psychologically with the body horror, as you say, yeah, yeah. of having everything you are taken away and then imprinted upon the machine. That's incredibly dark yeah. and incredibly horrible. And if it is, as again, on the surface, it is just a robot. Again, B-movie kind of thing. They, but like they turned it into a cartoon. Yeah. Like a lot, like a lot of, uh, there's a lot of 80s um, Rambo was like Rambo turned, was Rambo turned, was turned into a cartoon Police yeah. Academy Conan the Barbarian yeah. R-rated 18 sex comedies and uh, action movies were turned into children's Saturday morning cartoons like, I think back it's to bizarre, isn't, it? It? I, isn't it it's mad like, you look, like Rambo like First Blood yeah. was like about a fucking PTSD victim yes. who in the original cut killed himself 
yeah. And like now it's like fucking G.I. Joe almost. And he didn't kill, he doesn't kill anybody in the first one. Yeah. One person dies by accident. Yeah. And then the second one, the second one's written by Cameron. Cameron, yeah. You know, and it's kind of there. There's, a, there's another aspect. It's, you know. I know, it's total Reagan. It's Reagan's America. We lost the Vietnam War and the trauma of losing the Vietnam War. And this film as well is about that. The trauma of refighting the Vietnam War. But they're almost doing it on the streets and this and like, you know. But it's that you have people dealing with militarised gentrification yeah. of old Detroit and the new. And, you know, we're going to bring Delta jobs. Delta City, yeah. Delta City, but it's everything. But also the idea as well of a privatised police force might seem... Uh, ridiculous, but they've already privatized their healthcare system. They privatized their, you know, their welfare systems to a degree. You know, mm. and they've privatized. Uh, the, you know, they're trying to do it with the post office service now and the prison service. Yeah. So the idea of a corporation taking over was was a big, big, big part of eighties uh, American Reaganomics and, and Thatcher. And like, funny enough, like you think of it now, like I mean, again, it's one of those films. I think that like we were talking about this before that when you initially watch it when you're a kid, you just kind of leave it as a B-movie, but you, when you come back to it, you realise that there's a deeper layer. And, like, it's it, it, it's horrifying how fucking relevant it is. Oh, yeah, big time. But even that, that city in decline, all those post-industrial mm. cities, it was on the decline then. It's even worse now. Yeah. Like, in some ways, there's a failed kind of, it's almost like a mini failed state yeah. in parts of it, you know? They can't get the water right and they can't get the police force yeah. uh, properly um, uh, funded, you know? It's like crime goes almost unchecked, so it's incredibly prophetic about what was about to happen, you yeah. know? But, um, yeah. Have you, I mean, I know you were mentioning before about how, um, how you wrote it into Dublin Old School and stuff like that. Has there been aspects of either any of the actors' performances or even in the script itself that you have taken to heart as a writer or as an actor? I, because my background is in theatre, I'm yeah. always, um, I love anything that's melodramatic. So I, you know, not melodramatic, maybe that's a wrong term. No, 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 I mean, I would, I would see that, yeah. The kind of like the... The, the whole thing is heightened. All the yeah. performances are heightened. The boardroom... Uh, even at the end there's uh, one of the Miguel Ferreira's friends you know is like the black guy when he like, turns goes, the yeah, camera gives him the thumbs gives him up the thumbs up and there's even Paul Verhoeven there's a scene in the nightclub where uh, the guy I can't remember the villain anyway he kicks Robocop in the balls in the it's balls. Ray Wise it's yeah, Ray, Wise, Ray yeah. Wise and then he has it takes out a gun the gun goes flying in the air and another guy <laughs> catches, catches it, it and keeps on dancing <laughs> with it and it's like that's a very 2008 kind of thing it's like ah, that's not out there but the boardroom scenes they have this melodramatic um, acting style Dan O'Hurley has this melodramatic acting style everything is kind of heightened so mm. anytime I would see that in a film I'm like ah oh, it's kind of really theatrical it's very hard to pull off I always felt that uh, uh, Star Trek Next Generation kind of had that as well yeah. that kind of grandiose kind of pontificate you know like actors uh, yeah. uh, holding court and like when they spoke they spoke with a gravitas and like, yeah. it was as if they were speaking Shakespeare but it was in a B movie so I always loved that kind of uh, thing a lot of film acting now is incredibly it's always like since the method kind of came in in the yeah. 50s it's always been incredibly um uh, internal and you know just doing or thinking the thought and hoping that that will uh, be enough to uh, be enough convince. to or it will, will it will translate into the face you yeah know? um and some films totally want that they push for that uh, not all of them get it but then I always really loved that those films that just threw you know abandoned like so aliens you know Bill Paxton and aliens like that kind of performance wouldn't get over the line now mm. you know they'd be kind of going just do less just do less and I know actors that work in Hollywood and they've <laughs> <laughs> oh, they put the, the very funny story of it. They were doing a TV thing and they did some kind of smile. And then he goes, Do less, you know. And then they did another smile. And then the director goes, Just don't do anything. <laughs> so, literally, just 
those amounts just do nothing. And I suppose cameras as well kind of pick up a lot more than they would have done before. Ah, you know? Come on now. Like, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't buy that. Like, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Like, I think what happens is in terms of acting, it, I've always tried to imbue everything with energy. Yeah, and and you know, and and there is a real kind of thing. It's even happened in. I suppose we can talk about Irish acting, sure, you know, yeah. like, and Irish filmmaking. There was a thing where schools would essentially teach people a kind of form of the method as a form of acting as psychology. Sure, not necessarily a technique or a way of kind of approaching the work, but I always felt that it was not a teaching of a process to get to that point where you could basically strip away all the layers and do absolutely nothing but at the same time you're doing a lot yeah De Niro and his early work you know and all those kind of uh, great method actors and yeah. Brando and stuff and they would do, be doing nothing but there was a lot going on under the surface you know their legs were paddling yeah, oh yeah completely yeah, yeah yeah so what was happening was they were essentially mimicking the end product Correct. Without nothing. doing the work. Yeah. So essentially, that translated into do nothing. Do nothing, which also then translated into an indecipherable delivery of text. So text started to become mumbled, and text started to become whispered. So people would be kind of like doing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, what? You'd be in a scene with people doing scenes, and you can't actually hear what the other actors saying. And you're not even sure if they're doing anything, and they think they're doing this kind of like they're making this big choice of like I'm doing nothing I'm in this doing scene, nothing, which yeah. then translates into kind of like can't actually be heard, can't be understood, and the actual message sometimes of the dialogue, which is the only important, you just need to get that out there. Mm. Sometimes it is just expositionary dialogue that you need to push the story forward to get it out there. The kind of David Mamet, um, yeah. school of, of acting and writing, just get the lines out. Like I've listened to interviews with David Mamet. It's funny you mention him, and his his thing is is like. The actor's uh, kind of motivation is just get to the end of the scene. Just get the end of the scene, yeah. Just don't, just say the lines as I tell you. Yeah. If you need motivation, your motivation is to get the end of the scene. He, he wrote loads of, he, he's written lots of plays. Yeah. He, like he, William H. Macy was a, was a collaborator with him in, in, in Chicago in the 70s and they wrote lots of plays like Sexual Perversion in Chicago and Oleana and uh, American Buffalo. And he wrote scripts obviously for Untouchables. So he wrote a book called True and False. Now he's, he's a bit dogmatic about it to the very so a lot of actors would go to acting college they'd learn all of these various different uh, techniques um, they say sometimes Stavislavski yeah, and all that kind of all stuff all this yeah. and the method is a, is a modern version the 1950s uh, mid 20th century version of Stanislavski's early 20th century uh, method and that was what I was talking earlier about Meyerhold and he was another school of thought yeah. so Mamet kind of just skews all of that because he just has no time for it. Mm. People go, what's my motivation? He's like, your motivation is to get out of my face and get out there and get the lines out and shut the fuck up. Because you would find in rehearsals what they call the rehearsal hog. Per- person will go, I'd like to talk about my character, which isn't the person talking about the character, they just want to talk. Talk, about, yeah, yeah. Just talk, you know? And uh, so, he was very much kind of a thing, there's no such thing as character, you just need to get out there. If it's not in the script, then it's not in the script, that's it. And a woman famously, you know, sent him a letter, he was doing one of his plays that, character says that she studied in Europe for some time would you mind me asking how much time she spent in Europe and he just wrote back like literally some time (laughs) (laughs) so Carol like like, I'd find it now in theatre a lot like people would basically if it's not on the page they will construct an entire backstory not the actor now but the director might want you to construct an entire backstory from the time they were born up to where they are in the play at the age of 38 or whatever you're playing and you have to construct this whereas man it's just like is that going to help you deliver the line better yeah is it going to inform how you deliver that line on page 27 is it no he thinks if it is go ahead but it's kind of unintended busy work 
Yeah. I'm working here. I'm doing lots of this kind of work. I've constructed a whole. They're like, you know, a lot of actors do it. They need to do it in order to construct a character if it's not on the page. And a lot of the time in films, the character isn't on the page. The character is just five lines. So they might find that they need to do that. But in theatre, I think a lot of the time the character is incredibly well written. They're extensively written. Yeah. And they are fully formed. You know, that kind of need to construct an extra play in order to motivate you in the play that you're doing doesn't have to be written by you or the director and anybody else yeah. and I kind of believe that with Mammoth you know it's just either on the page or it's not just get it out and what about you now but you yourself like when you're writing what do you do would you follow the Mammoth kind of ideology of like it's on the page just fucking do it or would you be like no I want you to go away and I want you to write like 10 pages about what you're I, I don't want to dismiss either or because I do think that both have valid uh there are valid criticisms and there are valid benefits to yeah. both. I'm just curious like what you're for yourself. Depends like. on the actor. Really? So, yeah? yeah, it depends on the actor. It's really actor specific. So there's some actors if I was doing something with them and just like, just get the fucking line out. And that's what they need to hear. Do you know what I mean? Because they're caught up in their own head and they've read yeah. this book and it's like, don't, just get rid of it. It's all nonsense. Just say the line. And like, and sometimes it would be like a thing of, don't, don't fall off the end of the line. Yeah. You know, like, um, you know, I'll buy that for a dollar. Just I'll buy that for a dollar. Just hit the end of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So sometimes it's a creatively functional kind of thing of like, you know, and I do dialect coaching on some films as well. So like, you know, just with actors and just like just say it and just get it out there and stop trying to put weird stresses in weird places, you know, as a functional kind of act. Now that but that's not the discount, the idea of the method. The only thing about the method is there's an idea that you have to drum yourself up into this physical frenzy or mental or uh, anguish, and then you'll kind of hit it. But then you might go out on stage the next night and you don't hit that. Yeah. So it's kind of like throwing throwing it at the wall. Some nights it hits, some nights it doesn't. So for some actors, you will have to basically fake it. Mm. And they don't believe in faking it. So they don't believe in doing it unless they've actually they've felt it emotionally. But sometimes yeah. on the day, with the cameras rolling and the audience is out in the play, you know, you need to hit it regardless. So they will say, I don't care if you don't actually feel it. Just I need you to get there. Mm. And ultimately it's a mixture of different actors and I wouldn't tell any actor to do it but I think with my own yeah. work if I'm directing actors in theatre it is just a case of just like going well, how, what would help you and to some get actors, to there yeah to get to there to get to that point and some actors need a layered kind of thing they will do the work they'll read the books and some actors like that they will they will construct an entire labyrinth in their head uh, to get their character to that point and that will help them and mm. then other actors are very good at just going I know how to deliver this line at this point and where to pause and where not to pause and sometimes people don't like to know people don't like to know people don't like to admit this it is like playing a sport mm. tennis I need to take in half a breath in order to get these three lines out that don't have a comma or don't have a full stop until halfway down the page and I need to keep on speaking mm-hmm. until I get to that line and I can only do that if I take in this amount of breath there you go or taking in a big deep breath yeah. so sometimes you know knowing as well when to do that without the audience noticing that you're doing it so sometimes those things become second nature to people yeah. they can just do it but sometimes you have to actually think of those things before you're doing them and that takes you out of the scene you know what I mean yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's a technical aspect to it and then there is also the emotional aspect yeah. you need to basically learn all of those things so you can forget them and they become second nature and then you can get into the emotional investment of feeling this yeah. you know that's quite dark as well you know you don't always want to be you don't want to be there in the middle of it in the shit like you need you to know. be able to turn it off you know yeah. you to, like, and the kind of idea of the method is mad the idea of the method is like it's exciting to non-actors 
Yeah. Because they go, I could never do that. I could never live mm. my whole life. Like, of course you couldn't, because you're not going to be asked it, because mm. you're not an actor. Like, so that to them is incredibly exotic. Yes. So the idea of the method is incredibly exotic. The idea of, you know, someone being able to maintain uh, a historical figure like George Washington mm. all the time. But actually, do they? Are they going into the petrol station and walking up as Bill the Butcher and going, whoopsie daisies, give me, fill me up on point, you know, pump number two, you know? <laughs> whoopsie daisies, you know what I mean? So like, how much do they? And how much are they actually yeah. just going to And this is the thing with Weller and Robocop, just to bring him Yeah, yeah, no, that's, what, that's where it was leading it to. This yeah. is the thing, you know, how much do you do it until you just piss off your co Everybody else, yeah. And he pissed off for Hoven. For Hoven was like, what? Just fucking. Yeah. You want me to refer to you as Murphy and Robo? Fucking get out there. It's costing me a million fucking bucks a day. Just, or whatever it was. Yeah. Just Yo, get out there. Get the fucking line yeah, out. And that's, yeah. I'm very much kind of, you know, you're working with. <laughs> you're working within the time constraints. And like, it, whether it's theatre, whether it's film, whether it's yeah. TV, you have got X amount Good of days to do this. I need you to get here. So if you need to go off and pretend yeah, that yeah, you're yeah. a fucking Robocop, do it. Do it. If you don't, great. Yeah. Whatever. I just need you, when I turn on the camera, you're fucking there and yeah. doing what I need you to do. That's I need it. you to fake it. I need yeah. you to get there. And it's that thing of, I don't have time uh, to, and, and on stage. You I would imagine it's even time. more fraud. It's even yeah. more fraud because there's 80 minutes and you're building up to that. And in that moment, if you don't have it, you don't have the opportunity or the luxury to stop everything and go, you know, I'm just not feeling it at the moment. Can we Can we, can we go, go back? back? Yeah. <laughs> you know, back to one, back to one. It's coming towards you like a freight train. So you yeah. either hit that thing or you don't. So there's a theatre, there is a very, I don't know if it's my background, there's like, you know, very kind of meat and two veg kind of approach yeah. to acting and to writing that I'm like, you know, uh, dramaturgs and script editors will work with you and they're like, maybe, you know, you know, allowing you to find your way. And I'm just like, do you have the answer? Yeah, well then just tell me. Yeah, what is it? Like, we don't what need to do it? this song and dance. Where do I need to fucking cut that? And they're yeah. like, maybe page 52, get rid of that Great. paragraph. Done. <laughs> Done. That's and, I, and as well, you know, knowing when to take take everyone's advice. Uh, that's one thing as a, as an actor, and one thing as a film, not as a filmmaker, but a scriptwriter. But like knowing that if they go, you need to get rid of this because it's actually slowing down the film, and we don't need it. And we haven't got the money to pay for that same sound. Great, gone. And I'm just like that. I'm just like get rid of it because otherwise the thing won't happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It doesn't happen unless everybody's on board and shooting in the same direction. You know. But I mean, to kind of pull in Robocop for that for a minute because like I feel. I, that kind of sense of don't be precious about it just yeah. get to the end of it like like Robocop is like it's it's under two hours I'm nearly sure isn't it it's, it's only about like an hour 40 I think, yeah. even if you know. and that's what I'm saying like it's a very kind of like duh, 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 duh. like it is there's the arc three acts there we go and it hits it. that it hits that you know if anybody doesn't know Sid Field is a is a scriptwriting guru who wrote a book about scriptwriting and filmmaking kind of when those books came out became incredibly prescriptive each of them follows in a very very specific architecture of the exciting incidents on the, the seventh page which happens in this you know the 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 for the, the end of the first act is you know Robocop or Murphy gets shot mm. and becomes Robocop finding or getting lost and then finding his arc or his, his redemption essentially and yeah. then the false ending and then the kind of like the summing up the neatly and it is a textbook approach to script writing and I'm no doubt that they read that book as well but it works because it That's is it. lean it Correct. works in a sense sometimes that kind of a uh, prescriptive locked in architecture has an incredibly dulling effect on movie making where you know things don't have the ability to shock and to awe you mm. but what they do with this is they shock and awe with things like you know the adverts and the sensational violence like mm. incredibly cartoonish violence uh, that's over the top and actually you know as we were saying films have gotten 
less they've dulled yeah, yeah they've, they've dulled, dulled it, yeah. well everything it's like there's a big thing you know I was reading a book actually because I'm doing this this thing about a video shop in Tala I was reading books about films in the 80s you know there's a puritanical um, aspect uh, approach to sex in American films where films were allowed to be violent in the 70s in the 80s but sex was almost taboo, taboo. Just, you couldn't do it it was a bit more than with the sex kind of movies of like you know fell attraction and the basic instinct later on but then you know it's so weird you know like they're, they're okay with gun violence and yeah. like, but, you know but boobs were cut out of this film yeah. there's a scene where an advert where the I buy that for a dollar guy basically goes into a pizza restaurant where that's the pizza that was served with the, uh, by women who have like a hooters but with no bras on and uh, and they were like they were like what about your arm getting blown off what about the hand getting shot off the body hard like oh that's okay the boobs have to go but yeah you gotta get rid of you that you gotta get rid of the female form which is just it's, it's, bizarre and yeah and like I, again it goes to that thing of Verhoeven being an outsider having no kind of they're more afraid of female form than they are correct, like yeah, know, that's good, it. bloody violence of a woman being shot to death correct like you they're know. totally okay with like literally a man's hand and like them cracking yeah. a jug like give him a hand give him a hand you know you're, and like throwing a bad guy like what's me I'm laughing at now Cause, but it is funny because he does it it's something that Tarantino and a lot of kind of filmmakers yeah. would do later where you know Bathos you know like in the middle of something and even in the last Star Wars movie The Last Jedi which had never happened in any Star Wars movie where you know Kylo Ren kicks one of the red guard into the thing and you know blows yeah. up in the thing there's this kind of distilling of violence in order to undercut distilling of humour out there comedy to undercut the violence you know yeah. Tarantino does it in Pulp Fiction you know he goes over the speed bump blows your man's head off and so did he go over speed bump though I always wondered I don't, I don't think know. he did I, I think, I think he just yeah. yeah I don't know yeah. but it is I think it's the way they get away with it they, I think if they put in and he would have if it was if there wasn't that kind of out there comedy uh, sick humour they wouldn't have gotten past the senses I don't yeah. think there's a skewering of it you know So yeah. did you see the reboot I seen that um, it's just there was a scene in that where that should have been Verhoeven did something with the original Robocop to go back again where the reveal of Robocop is very slow yeah. you see him through frosted glass you see him from the perspective of POV you see him the sounds the sound design in this film is incredible yeah right? really good Ed 209 like a tiger oh, roaring when the things oh. come in the sound design and the music was brilliant you never really see him and it's like Alien you know they didn't have the money and, and it was someone else said they were hoping they will laugh their asses off the minute they see, they see him, him fully formed fully yeah. formed you just kind of throw him out there so he's slowly slowly kind of a, now everything's laid out on the table with all of these movies and everything has been homogenised everything has been and even though like look these are corporations still that were making films but there was still a kind of grindhouse independent movie making aspect that happened in the 80s where these independent filmmakers in the 70s came into grindhouse lower rung corporate uh, places like Carl Co and Orion yeah. but they were still given a certain amount of they were given distance yeah, yeah I mean but you see it's pre 9-11 as well you know yeah. there was there was a big meeting between Hollywood producers um, post 9-11 where Hollywood essentially said how can we help and the reinforcing of the message of the fight on terror was kind of put into action movies and you see it now like the guy that wrote Numiere pointed about, about he sees you know uh, Marvel movies and he, but I think it was a bad example really well I, 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 I take his point yeah Robocop should have been should have been this like you know they could have a brilliant opportunity to talk about yeah. dehumanisation mechanised uh, American war like Americans getting involved in other people's wars I remember there was a thing about Iran they've invaded yeah. Iran dropped a lot of robots in but they just missed the boat with it, you know what I mean I think though I mean having, I, I remember at the time uh, when Robocop was out it was it, it always happens with those kind of troubled productions where the film comes out and then a week later you see a big write up in THR or Variety where it's like 
oh, the film had a troubled production kind of thing. And Robocop, apparently, the guy who directed that was Jose Padilla, who did, what did he do? Narcos. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, and he basically said, I had 10 ideas, maybe one of them got through. And he feel, I always felt like Robocop was a lost opportunity. Yeah. I do think the reboot of Robocop was a lost opportunity. I, I, it's shit. I mean, yeah. it's, you look at it, it's, it's bland, it is unoriginal, Joel Kinnaman completely miscast. Yeah. Just nothing, like, even the bits with Samuel L. Jackson when they're trying to rip the piss out of Fox, it's, it just doesn't land. But I feel like that, I, I, I have sympathy for it because I feel like they wanted, you can see slivers of it. Yeah. You can see tiny slivers of it that there was something there, like the Iran thing at the start. It's yeah, cla- there was, there was something. Yeah. Do you know what that is? It's it's films made by committee. And the one thing about Robocop was, it was the same script writers all the way through. Correct. And when Verhoeven asked them to rewrite it, and he had a bad idea, he would go, oh, let's go back to script two, uh, draft two, because he asked them to put an affair in. And he's like, oh, it doesn't work, it's terrible. Took it out, went back to draft two. And Minor said that, he said that if that was any other Hollywood director. They would have been no. It was just being fired. Yeah. And this is the thing when you get all these Terminator movies. You know, you see there's five names, six names, seven names. There's two names on the script, and nobody else or story boy. You know that this has been something that started from start to finish. You know, like even the recent Terminator movie, the Salvation. Oh, what's it? Is it Salvation? No, Dark Fate. Dark Fate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There was like there was like six writers on it or something. It's it's, it's, it's too many cooks. Basically, Cameron. And your man is a good, who's a really good director, Miller. Um, you can see that they're, they're yeah. fighting. You know, they're throwing attention is against ideas, working against each other. Whereas this is just it's clean. It's clean. You know, it's yeah. when someone wrote a script and then directed it, and that was it. But then what happens is now they're like new ideas in Hollywood are anathema, so they're always trying to resurrect old franchise or old ideas. So new Baby Driver maybe is one of the only kind of original new blockbusters that was an original idea in the last like five years mm. really I think so instead of actually going well what's the new Robocop what's the new kind of idea out there it's like how can we take this previous uh, really popular vehicle that wasn't that popular at the time no. it only became popular because of generations of people watching it on video and home entertainment it's the famous Dread you know didn't find an audience no. in the cinema did on DVD they just continue we want to kind of re- rehash like what's gone before you know yeah sorry I feel like I'm after being <laughs> rabbiting off no 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 that's good no that's <laughs> good minutes. we'll leave it there yeah yeah I think we're good yeah we're happy with that would you buy that episode for a dollar I'm not even charging you that's how nice I am. Big thank you to Emma Kerwin for coming into the studio and recording that. I remember actually when we recorded that episode, I made him like way late for his next appointment. So Emmett, if you're listening, I am sorry. I want to thank Chris Corbett as well who helped record that episode. Thanks as well to Owen Renane and Charlotte Reed and Fiona Flynn for editing and production. If you enjoyed that episode, if you've been enjoying the show so far, we would absolutely love it if you uh, liked and subscribed. Or even told a friend. You don't have to be doing that. You can uh, follow us on Spotify and you can follow us on Apple Podcasts. I'm on Twitter. My Twitter is at Brian M. Lloyd. That's L-L-O-Y-D. Cinemas are currently closed at the minute and I've got nothing going on. I'm very online. It's torture. But uh, yeah, you can get me there. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the show. I certainly enjoyed that. And uh, I'll talk to you next time.